0: Thanks, Carl. Is this thing working? Excellent. I can just yell if it's not. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just pray that as we come to your word this morning, I just pray that you'd help us to hear what you are saying. These chapters are hard. They're hard reading, most of them. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to have open hearts to hear what you're saying to us. Help us also also to see the hope that's at the end of those two chapters. And Lord, help us to realize and have an honest appreciation of where we stand before you and how we stand before you. Lord, I just pray, Father, that you'd be with me. Help me to faithfully expound your word and help us to listen. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You know, I, most of you probably know that I'm not a native Tasmanian. Does everyone know that? I don't know. How long do you have to live here before you are? 30 years, or you have to be of three generations or something. Anyway, we moved here about four years ago. And I remember when we moved here to Tassie, we discovered that there were a a few differences between Tassie and Queensland. Can anyone think of just one? Sorry? Temperature? The name. Oh, great. You've always got the right answer, Carl. But one thing that we discovered was that when you went to a takeaway and asked... For a potato scallop, does anyone know what a potato scallop is? Some of you who've been to Queensland, we'd get this blank stare. It was as though we were speaking a foreign language, and I, guess, and I guess in a way we were speaking a foreign language. The reason is because what in Queensland is called a potato scallop, in Tassie is called a... Potato cake, that's right. So if you ask for a potato scallop in Tassie, you'll get a blank stare stare, or maybe you'll get offered a scallop pie, which is something quite different to what you wanted. And it works the other way too. So I'd just like to tell you as an ex-Queenslander to give you some cross-cultural advice for you Tasmanians when the borders finally open and it's safe to travel to Queensland for winter, a cultural lesson for next time you go there. If you go to a takeaway in Queensland and ask for a potato cake, you will get a strange look. They might say, well, over in the cakes and slices section, we have carrot cakes, but, but we don't have potato cakes. If you want a potato cake in Queensland, you'd better call it "A? A potato scallop. Exactly. So the thing is that when you move from one place to another place, Different places do things differently and they call the same thing by different names and sometimes they even have things that you've never seen before. Today we are going to go back in time to a different time, to a different culture, a different way of writing. If a 21st century Aussie picks up the book of Micah and starts reading, it can be tough going. Who's found reading Micah really easy? So there you go, a bit like a potato scallop. They did things differently back then. And over there in ancient Israel, they spoke differently. And sometimes they used different ways of talking about the same thing. And sometimes they did things that we don't do. So before we dive into Micah, I'd like just to say a few words about the way that the book of Micah is written, about who Micah was, and about the period of time in which Micah wrote. Now, the book of Micah is what we call prophetic poetry. Prophetic poetry. So firstly, it's prophetic, in that Micah was a prophet. That is, is, he is someone who spoke God's words. And they were generally, if you've already read through Micah, you will notice that they're generally words of judgment against a sinful people words that were warning them of God's impending judgment because of their rebellion against him. But as well as judgment, he also prophesied hope, not for everybody, but for a remnant, a small number of people who would be rescued from the consequences of their sin. But this book is also poetic, If you open up Micah and you look at the page or the screen in front of you, most Bible versions set out Micah like poetry, in lines. Now, who here likes poetry? Really, who likes poetry? Yep, that's what I was expecting, about five or six of you. The thing is, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's Henry Lawson, who remembers those ballads we had to learn from the 19th century Australian ballads in school? The thing is that not many modern Aussies really dig poetry much. It's just not a thing in Australia. It is for some of you, but for most of us it's not. But the Hebrews were different. The Hebrews loved poetry. And Micah is poetic through and through. In the original Hebrew, it's full of these puns and plays on words, which unfortunately don't usually come through in translation. But one thing that does come through is something called parallelism. And some, this is pretty important to know so that you can understand what's going on because you can see it in translation. And this is where you say the same, much the same thing twice, but in different words in order to get your point across. You know when you're trying to tell someone something and you tell it to them twice? Well, the Hebrews love doing that. And you can see an example of that in Micah chapter 1, verse 5. You can see up there on the screen. The first line in that verse says, all this is because of Jacob's transgression because of the sins of the people of Israel. It's basically two ways of saying the same thing. Transgression in line one means much the same thing as sins in line two. Micah's picked a synonym. And Jacob is just another name for Israel. Where's Jacob? We can call you Israel from now on. They repeated things for emphasis. And you'll see this parallelism a lot in Old Testament poetry. But we don't use it in English. So as we get ready to read through Micah, we need to realise it's a bit like a Queenslander moving to Tassie. You've got to learn the lingo of the new place, or at least get used to it. So the next question we have is, who was this Micah? Well, we've already seen that he was a prophet who loved prophesying in poetry. Apart from that, we do not actually know a lot about Micah. It does tell us in verse 1 that he came from a place called Morasheth. You can try saying that quickly. And that is a small town in the low hill country to the southwest of Jerusalem. And when did Micah prophesy? Well, this is quite important. It tells us in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morisheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The reason this is important is because this was a really interesting but unstable period of time in Israel's history. When Micah first started prophesying, there were actually two Israelite kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was often just called Israel because most of the tribes were there, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. You can see them there on that map up there. Later on in Micah's life, during the reign of Hezekiah, the northern kingdom actually collapsed. It was defeated by the powerful superpower of Assyria, And it completely ceased to exist as an independent country. The Assyrian Empire also tried to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and did in fact manage to overrun many of the towns and cities in southwest Judah. But the Assyrians were not able to conquer the capital of Jerusalem. And so the southern kingdom of Judah, although battered and bruised by the Assyrians, managed to survive for about another hundred years after that. So in other words, Micah lived in a very turbulent period of time for the ancient Israelites. We don't know exactly during that time range of those three kings when he exactly wrote those prophecies, but from its content, it's likely that he wrote some of it before the fall of Samaria and other parts after the fall of Samaria, and possibly some of it during the time when Assyria was also conquering, or about to conquer, some of the towns and cities in Judah. But what we do know is that it was an unstable, uncertain time, a violent time, a time when many refugees from the conquered northern kingdom flooded into the southern kingdom of Judah. It was an uncertain time. So now that we have some of this background... Kemi will come up shortly and read out this passage for us. So get ready, Kemi. As she does, please listen out for some of the things that we just talked about. Notice the time period. Notice the poetry. Notice the parallelism. Notice the judgments which take up most of the passage. And notice why God is bringing judgment. And then notice, towards the end of chapter 2, the words of hope. And what it says about the one who will deliver the Israelites. Thanks Kimmy.
1: Word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place, He comes down and threads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Goth. Weep, weep not at all. In Beth, Oprah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame. You who live in Shifer, those who live in Zainan will not come out. Beth Israel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth breathe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gates of Jerusalem. You who live in Likish, harness fast horses to the chariots. You are where the sin of Daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Marasheth Gath. A town of Aksik will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who lives in Marashaf. the nobles of Israel who flee to Adullam Shave your head in mourning, For the children in whom you delight, make yourselves as bold as a vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Sorry, I was going to play the audio. Woe to them who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covered fields and seized them and houses, and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against these people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it is a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is given up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophet says. Do not prophesy about these things. This grace will will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said? Does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good? To the one whose ways are upright. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. They strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from from their children forever. Get up. Go away. For this is not your resting place. Because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy if a liar and deceiver comes and says i will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer that would be just that would be just a profit for these people i will surely gather all of you jacob i will surely bring together the remnant of israel i will bring them together like sheep in a pen like a flock in its pasture the place will throng with people The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them, their Lord at their head.
0: Thanks, Kimmy. Now, the real guts of this prophecy don't start until verse 3. And in this section, so what we'll do is we'll go through section by section. You might have noticed there's a number of sections there. So in verses 3 to 7, we find a basic summary of God's indictment against Israel and Judah. It's almost like a summary of the book in a way. Firstly, we see God's power to act, and then the reason for God's judgment, which is the Israelite sin, and then the results of that, which is judgment and destruction. So in verses 3 and 4, we see a description of God's power. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt before him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. From these words, we get the sense of how powerful God is. God is not stuck up in heaven, somehow sequestered away from the real world. He is not powerless to act. No, God is involved in this world. He is powerful. All nature is subject to him. And the message is that if you have rebelled against God and his laws, watch out. He is not idle. He is not remote. He is not powerless. On the contrary, nothing can stand in God's way. And so when God speaks, we should listen. And take notice and then in verse 5 we find a basic summary of the charge against the people of Jerusalem all this is because of Jacob's transgression because of the sins of the people of Israel what is Jacob's transgression is it not Samaria what is Judah's high place is it not Jerusalem the basic reason for God's judgment is Israel's sin And as we go on through the book of Micah in the coming weeks, Micah will give us details, more details, of what that sin actually was. But even in these introductory comments, we get a hint that there are two categories of sin that Micah is calling out in particular. Firstly, one is disobedience against God's laws. And as we'll see soon, that particularly in Micah is in relation to sins of social injustice. The second category is idolatry. When it says Judah's high place in verse 5, the word high place is not just referring to the top of the hill. It's not as though hills are in themselves bad. But it refers to the altars to false gods that ancient peoples tended to build on tops of hills and mountains. Worshipping false gods, that means anyone or anything other than the one true God, is a big sin that Micah calls out. And then in verse 7, we see the judgment, the punishment. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images, since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. This particular judgment is directed against the false gods, the false religions of those times, but we will see later that there is also judgment for the people who follow those false gods and who disobey God's laws. So now that we've had a brief look at this introductory summary, we can have a look at the next sections. The next section, still in chapter 1, but verses 9 to 16, we now have what we call a lament. A lament is a piece of poetry that mourns the destruction that Micah has seen. A destruction that is God's judgment on wicked Judah. This section was probably written after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel And during the time, or just after, Assyria was ravaging the towns of Judah that were situated just to the southwest of Jerusalem. And Micah's deep grief is very deep. Look at these words in verse 8. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal. I will moan like an owl. That is deep grief. But why? Is his grief so deep? It is because he has just witnessed the destruction that the Assyrian army has wrought. In verse 9 he says, For Samaria's plague is incurable, it's spread to Judah. It's reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, has been brutally conquered by the Assyrians, but now the Assyrians have turned south. They have either laid waste to many Judean towns or they're about to. And they come to the very gates of Jerusalem itself to threaten it. The rest of this chapter lists the many towns and cities to the southwest of Jerusalem. And you can see some of them on the map there. Some of them we don't know exactly where they are. But these towns that suffered as the Assyrian armies marauded through them. But now remember, this is poetry. And in the Hebrew, there's actually quite a lot of punning and plays on words in this section. And some translations, such as the NIV, will have little footnotes that tell you about them. For example, in verse 10, it says, In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. In Hebrew, the word for dust is Afar. So in Hebrew, it sounds something like In Beth Afra, roll in the Afar, which is the word for dust. Do you hear that play on words? And that's through most of those prophecies there. This punning would probably sound a bit cheesy for Australians, corny to us. But for ancient Hebrews, they loved punning in their poetry. I think I'd make a good Hebrew because I love punning too. But it was a really effective way to communicate. And most of the things that happened to the other towns and cities in this section have these punning word plays. And you can look at the footnotes in your Bible if you want to see more of them. And so in this section from verses 8 to 16... We've seen the results of God's judgment, terrible destruction, terrifying suffering. But why? Why would God do this to them? In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it tells us why. Verse 1, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do so yes there are people who plan to do evil and then because they have the power or the ability to do so they actually carry out the evil that they're planning to do but what sort of evil is this in verse 2 it says they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them they defraud people of their homes they rob them of their inheritance Back in the earlier parts of the Old Testament when God gave Israel the law, agricultural land was supposed to be passed down from family to family to family and stay within family units. And God set it up that way so as to stop the rich becoming richer and the poor becoming poorer. But there were these wealthy people who had the power, perhaps through money lending, perhaps through political influence, perhaps through buying off judges, and they used their power, their wealth, their influence, to take away poorer people's ancestral agricultural land. And that land was their source of income, how they survived. In other words, it is the rich using their power to become richer at the expense of the poor, And this is the first of many social injustices that are mentioned in the book of Micah. And for which Micah condemns the wealthy and powerful of Judah and Israel. The next few verses tell us that as a result of their sin, God will plan disaster against them. So, what are we seeing so far? Well, we see a people, the people of Israel and Judah we see that they have rebelled against God, both in a religious sense of forsaking the one true God and worshipping false gods, but they've also rebelled against God's laws. They've been unjust. In their greed, they've been robbing the poor. And as a consequence of this rebellion against God and against his laws, Micah prophesies judgment. Judgment. That the terrible things that have happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, which were a judgment for their sin, are also going to happen to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, when we read Micah and when we read a lot of the other Old Testament prophets, we can think that they are doom and gloom prophets. Who thinks that Micah's a bit of a doom and gloom prophet? Nobody? Or do you think he's just being happy? <laughs> Who thinks he's a doom and gloom prophet? Be honest. He is, isn't he? And which I guess they are doom and He is a doom and gloom prophet. And who likes doom and gloom? Most of us do not like doom and gloom. It's too negative. We want to be positive. We do not like prophets who prophesy judgment. And the ancient Israelites were the same. They also didn't like prophets who prophesied judgment. You see, Micah was not the only so-called prophet at that time. There were also other prophets around. And these other prophets didn't buy into the doom and gloom of prophets like Micah. These were the positive only prophets. Who basically told Micah to stop prophesying doom and gloom. And we read about what they say in the next section. In chapter 2 verse 6 and 7. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said? Does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Yes, these positive prophets were berating Micah. Surely God would not bring judgment. Surely our sin isn't really that bad. Surely he would not do these things. But Micah tells us what he thinks of these positive only prophets. In verse 11, If a liar or deceiver comes and says... I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. I think that probably not just for Israel, but probably for Australia too. There you go. Prophets who prophesy plenty of wine and beer. The sort of prophets that Aussies would like to. But Micah says that these sorts of prophets are actually liars and deceivers. And so we are almost at the end of our first two chapters... So far, it's looking pretty gloomy. Who reckons it looks pretty gloomy? It does look pretty gloomy. The sin of the ancient Israelites was so bad that God's judgment was already upon them. And it was prophesied to get worse. Other prophets, the positive rosy ones, were condemned as liars and deceivers. It all sounds pretty depressing. Hopeless. Is Micah only negative? Is he only doom and gloom? No, it's not. Our last two verses show us that there is hope. Verses 12 and 13 in chapter 2. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. In these last two verses, we see a wonderful hope for the future. A hope that goes beyond the judgment of destruction. There will be one who breaks open the way, a king who will pass through before them and who will deliver them. Who is this one? Who is this king with the Lord God at their head? Well, Micah doesn't yet tell us here in chapter two, but later on in Micah, and we'll see that in the ne- in the next few weeks, we'll see that this is in fact the beginnings of a messianic prophecy. That is, it is a, prophesy, a prophesying the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And from the New Testament, we know that through Jesus's death and resurrection, he breaks open the way that goes beyond our sin and delivers Israel and Jacob from what they actually deserve. Okay, we've made it to the end of those two chapters. There's a lot of interesting information about people who lived 2,700 years ago on the other side of the world. But what do they have to say to us here in 21st century Launceston? You know, as we went through these two chapters of Micah, a lot of it would seem strange and unfamiliar to us. The poetic style, the repetition of parallelism, the names of towns and places which are hard to pronounce, the culture and environment of the time, the concept of kingship, the concept of ancestral lands, all those things are quite foreign to us. But remember the potato cakes at the beginning of the sermon. Remember that in Queensland they're called what? Potato scallops. I'm going to teach you Tasmanians how to say it properly. But even though they have different names, they are actually exactly the same thing. Even though a born and bred Tasmanian has no idea what a potato scallop is and a born and bred banana bender has no idea what a potato cake is, they are, in fact, exactly the same thing. Just different ways of saying the same thing. And going back to Micah, even though the style of prophetic poetry can be quite strange to us, even though the geography of nations, towns and cities of the ancient Israelites is quite foreign to us, even though the customs of ancestral lands and worshipping false gods and the tops of hills and mountains is beyond our experience, the basic human condition is exactly the same. Just like those ancient Israelites, most 21st century Aussies reject the one true God. Just like those ancient people, our society and culture is full of sin. Just like back then, our modern world is full of social injustice and corruption. And just like Micah's day, our world is politically unstable and increasingly dangerous. And just like those days, our world and particularly Australia is full of prophets who don't believe God will ever judge us. Prophets who ignore how sinful we really are and who can only prophesy positivity, wine and beer and your best life now. Let's have a closer look at Micah's day and see how it compares to ours. Remember in Micah's day, sin and rebellion against God were rampant. Remember one category of wrongdoing, idolatry. Building shrines to false gods on the tops of hills and mountains. Well, I think if you go up to Mount Barrow, you won't find a shrine up there. You'll find a few TV towers, but no shrines. So we don't do that. But we still do have false gods, whether they are the New Age horoscopes statues of buddha on the front lawn or whether there are other religions or perhaps for most aussies just plain secularism which is the total of ignoring of god in everyday life and the other category of wrongdoing was rebellion against god's laws which in micah particularly focuses on the sins of social injustice we live in a world that is full of social injustice. And as we go through Micah over the next few weeks, we will see that many of the social injustices of Micah's day are still with us today. Because at our heart, as people, we are still as greedy and rebellious as in Micah's day. In the second half of chapter 1, we read Micah's weeping and wailing He's howling like a jackal and moaning like an owl as he watched the destruction of many of the towns and cities of Judah, including his hometown of Morashet. Now, maybe we don't howl like a jackal or moan like an owl when we are sad, but our world, too, is full of destruction and misery. In the last few weeks, we've watched the fall of Afghanistan and its capital, Kabul, And we've mourned as we've watched a horrendous, terrible regime take over. That has hit me hard personally. I know people affected by it. And like Micah, over the last few weeks, I have wept deeply over the tragedy of Afghanistan and her people. But it's not just Afghanistan. The world is in the midst of a pandemic, if you had not noticed. Not a corner of the world, of the globe, is unaffected by COVID. It's upended our lives. It's leading to civil unrest in parts of the world. It's divided America and other countries and has the potential to divide us here in Australia as well. Guess what? They had pandemics back in ancient Israel too. In your Bible, they're normally called plagues and pestilences. Different words? Same thing. And in Micah's time, those bad things were a result of God's judgment. Now, we do not today have prophets like Micah amongst us who can specifically point out that a specific war or plague or pandemic is the result of a particular sin. And we should be very wary of someone who does claim to say that. But what we can say in a general sense is that the breakdown of order, wars, pandemics, famines, recessions and hardships are a result of us living in a fallen world that is marred, just like in Micah's day, by our wrongdoing and rebellion against God. And just like in Micah's day, there are today also false prophets who ignore the sin and injustice in the world, who don't think God will call us to account for our rebellion and wrongdoing, but rather who will just tell us that we're basically good and we can have it all, who will tell us that we can be whatever we want to be, that we can have our best life now, that if we dream big enough, anything can come true. We can truly live the dream really that's not my experience of life is that really how life works try telling that to a woman stuck in the taliban ruled afghanistan try telling that to someone in an abusive relationship or to someone who's just lost their lost their kid or spouse in a car accident or to someone who's lost their job or business during the pandemic or to someone struck down with an incurable disease. You know, maybe a few people will get their dreams. But for most of us, life is full of struggle and pain, and then we die. Like the false prophets in Micah's day who prophesied wine and beer, a lot of this positive thinking of our day is selling people a false hope that only a few manage to achieve, and then they only achieve it. ...for a shortened certain period of time. So, is life hopeless? Are we stuck in the decay of this world... ...marred by our rebellion and sin? Is there no way out? According to Micah, there is a way out. And it's the one who breaks open the way... ...the king who will go before us. And he, this one, this king who we now know to be Jesus Christ, is the only way out. The only way of hope. Jesus Christ was born into this world. Jesus Christ, from God, who was God, who is God, lived and died and paid the penalty for our sin, for all those judgments that Micah talks about. He dealt with our sin. He took the punishment for our sin, for our rebellion upon himself. And he rose again to break through the gates of death, to lead his people to eternal life. Not to lead everyone to eternal life, but to lead those who have admitted to their sin and rebellion against God and have turned away from living their own way and turned towards living God's way. Those people who have trusted in Jesus the Messiah as the only way to escape the sin and suffering of this world. That is the message of Micah for us today. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you're not following Jesus. Micah and the rest of the Bible teaches us that the only solution to the problems of this world is turning away from our wrongdoing and rebellion against God and against his ways and turning towards God and trusting and following Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, I urge you to consider the claims of Christ, to turn from your sin and doing things your own way and turn towards Jesus and his way. And if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, then Micah reminds us that the reality of this world is that we do suffer. There is pain. And it's there because of our sin and rebellion. We can't sugarcoat the situation with positive thinking platitudes, but we can repent of our sin. We can live the way that Micah tells us to in chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God and as believers we can trust in our rescuer our savior Jesus Christ let's pray dear Lord we thank you for the book of Micah we thank you that 2700 years ago that you prophesied through Micah Lord, even though the words are hard, we thank you for telling us for telling us it like it is, warts and all. We thank you that you've brought it to our attention, our rebellion and sin against you. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, you'd help us to recognize it in our life and turn towards you. If there are any here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you'd work on their heart and bring them in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And for those of us who do know you, help us every day to live for you, to live humbly and walk before you, and to to live doing justice and showing mercy to others. We ask for this in your name. Amen.